Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When we think of plastic surgery, most people think of cosmetic surgery, which is right. an area where you most definitely do not want to be creative. If you the goal is to kind of do the same thing and you're always shooting for the same kind of platonic ideals most of the time, of course, you know, with some consideration of the person's own specific needs. But with free flap surgery, every day was different because it really depended on the cancer and what defect I was left with. And uh, often it was a big surprise because we would try to plan ahead of time, but you would never know until the tumor was out and the margins were clear what you were left with. So there was some creativity in terms of trying to figure out a way to adequately fix it. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And I have with me on today's show a very, very old and dear friend. This is Barry Malin. He is the founder and owner of Malin Gallery, which is an art gallery based in New York and Aspen. I'm going to talk with him a lot about the gallery, but about much more than that, too, because uh, I've known him for many years. Hi, Barry. Thank you for joining us on the True Fiction Project. Hi, Rainy. I'm glad to be here with you. As am I. And jumping right into it, you know, before we actually talk about the gallery, which I'm very, very curious about, I want to actually turn back the clock to some, I'm going to say 21, 22, 23 years ago. I remember moving here to San Francisco and you were here. And at that time, you were either in your residency, medical residency, or you were already a doctor, a head and neck cancer surgeon, if I remember correctly, right? Well, I think at that time I was still doing my internship, but then I did go on to do uh, head and neck cancer as a career. That's it. So you became a head and neck surgeon and then you moved east and you were a doctor. You were a surgeon for a long time. So tell me about that journey. And because I know you took so many years to prepare for it. <laughs> well, it was a long haul. I mean, I... Uh... Obviously, did medical school, internship, residency, and then uh, I did a fellowship in head and neck cancer and a fellowship in facial plastics and reconstruction. And ultimately, I worked at a cancer center on the East Coast, which had a fairly big draw, so we were quite busy. And I really was the, the reconstruction person for the department. 
And how many years did you do that, Barry? That was also quite a long time, right? Yeah, too many years. Too many years. So I'm curious about that. Why do you say too many? Because, you know, in those years, you met your life partner, you met your wife, you had a solid career as a surgeon. Why do you say too many? <laughs> well, I'm being a little bit facetious there, but yes. I'm sure we'll get to this, but that I, I did make a significant career change later on. And I'm quite happy with what I'm doing now. Uh, in some ways, I wish I would have started it sooner. So that's probably why I say too many years. I, I don't really regret what I did in medicine. It, it was very satisfying. It was certainly challenging. And, you know, I wouldn't take it back. But life is only so long. So, you know, when you get to your second act, the clock is ticking a little more loudly. So getting to that second act, what was it that suddenly drove the change? And was it sudden? It wasn't. It wasn't. In a way, it felt sudden, but I, I think it was building for a while. Part of the issue is what I did, which is that I essentially did what's called free flap reconstruction, which is sort of akin to transplant surgery, except you're transplanting tissue from the same person to reconstruct another part of their body. So I would like take the fibula from the leg, for instance, to reconstruct the jaw. And uh, those were very demanding surgeries. Oftentimes they were at night because we would do the work as a team. So the team that would be removing the cancer would work during the day and hopefully finish fairly early in the afternoon. But I usually wouldn't get, state, get started until the afternoon. So it was, um, there were a lot of long nights doing that. I did so get was married that a little bit later in life and it wasn't, uh, the uh -huh. lifestyle was not very consistent with marriage. Clearly, clearly. So at what point would you say you burned out? Firstly, is that accurate? Did you burn out or was it something else? I would say it was partially burnout, but that, that wasn't the full thing. I think the hardest part for me was just that I sort of became the head and neck surgeon of last resort for hmm. uh, a fairly large geographic area. So the longer my career went on, kind of the worst things got in terms of the caseload that I had to deal with. And um, just because of the disease that people would present with, uh, the five-year survival rate for my patients was pretty low. Not because of anything I did, but just because that's where we were starting from. So the longer I did it, you know, the more and more patients I had who I had become kind of attached to in some cases, you know, I ultimately lost. And that became kind of a cumulative impact on me over time. Mm. It was uh, a very challenging field and uh, it, it was sort of... Um, required an unusual mix of skills and attitudes because you had to be quite a perfectionist to do it, but mm -hmm. there were not that many unqualified wins. So over time, mm -hmm. it, you know, it became just more and more difficult kind of from an emotional standpoint to go through the end of life process with, uh, with so many patients. So I would say, I guess that's a type of burnout, but not necessarily what I think of right. first when people mention burnout, but that was 
I guess that was my burnout. Right. I can understand that going through that day in and day out for so many years, uh, as you say, being the, the surgeon of last resort, that can take a toll on you. Obviously, it did. So what happened? Did you decide to leave the medical profession and sort of explore what life had out there? Or had you already decided that you were going into the art world? It was sort of a combination of both. You asked before if it was a, a sudden decision or a long decision, and I would say it ultimately was a sudden decision with a long buildup that I may not have been that aware of um, while the buildup was occurring. But the day I really decided, I remember I was sitting in, in the parking lot of the cancer center, which was like across the street from the cancer hospital, and they had it's one of the amenities for patients. They would have like uh, valet parking, which was a little bit silly because the parking lot was like across the street. But anyway, that was uh, part of their marketing. So there are all these like 18 year old pimply faced kids in shorts who would park the cars. And uh, I was sitting there one day just kind of putting off going into my clinic a little bit. And I felt this intense jealousy of the 18-year-olds parking the cars. That's a very specific image. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it, it was one that was hard to ignore when, uh, you know, I thought about how many years I had trained for this and how much work I had put into it to have that kind of visceral feeling of like, I just don't even want to go in there anymore. And if I could wear shorts and park people's cars all day, I think I'd be happier. <laughs> So that that became when like the the buildup that I was not consciously aware of or had repressed to some degree kind of burst forth into my awareness. I guess one thing I should say as context for this is that doing free flap construction, which is really what I did almost exclusively, is kind of a time limited thing. Hmm. It's a little ironic because it takes you years to train to do it. But when they've done studies, the average career length, meaning the time that people spend doing this almost exclusively, is something like six or seven years. Why it's is really that? It's a young person's game, both from a physical and a mental standpoint. So it's something that people do for a while. And then later on in their career, they tend to do something that is a little less fraught, mm -hmm. like cosmetics or otolaryngology. What was unusual in my case was that instead of just like switching out to something else I could have done in medicine that I was trained for, I really stepped back and thought, well, if I'm going to make a change, what would I really want to do if I mm -hmm. could do anything, which I probably, you know, apart from uh, professional sports or a few other things, I felt like I could do most things. So I really posed the question of what would ideally I want to do? And the context for this was that, you know, I had spent years working with patients who were facing the end of life. And typically the conversations would involve me going on a great length about the type of cancer they had and what the appropriate treatment would be in, you know, with some degree of technical detail. And at the end, the question they posed was almost always the same. And the question was, okay, doctor, but am I going to die? Ugh. And, uh, my response got to be, 
the same over time. And it sounds a little flippant, but I really didn't mean it this way, which is that I would say, yes, you're going to die. But so am I. And so is the nurse. So the relevant question isn't really if. It's mm. what do you want to do with the time between now and then? What would right. be most satisfying for you? What would be best for your family? What's really most important to you? And I would tell them, you know, these are questions that everybody faces. In most of our lives, we're not really as cognizant of them day to day because we're just busy with other things. So, you know, we don't normally sit around reflecting on our own mortality. But Correct. I would say for you, it's obviously a little, it's a more urgent question, but the question is really qualitatively the same. So when I got to the point where I started thinking about making a change, I decided maybe I should try to listen to the advice that I had been dispensing for years. So you, you took an active decision to say, I've been giving this advice all these years to my patients. Let me sort of follow the advice myself. Did you know at that time that you were going to open an art gallery? And would it be wrong to sort of make the correlation between free flap surgery to art? I mean, it sounds like there was a bit of artistry there, or am I completely off? Well, in terms of the second part, I think there was some overlap in that I had always been interested in art. And Doing free flap surgery was like kind of the most creative thing I could find to do in surgery. Mm -hmm. um, when we think of plastic surgery, most people think of cosmetic surgery, which is right. an area where you most definitely do not want to be creative. Usually, the goal is to kind of do the same thing, and you're always shooting for the same kind of platonic ideals most of the time, of course, you know, with some consideration of the person's own specific needs. But with free flap surgery, every day was different because it really depended on the cancer and what defect I was left with. Mm -hmm. And uh, often it was a big surprise because we would try to plan ahead of time, but you would never know until the tumor was out and the margins were clear what you were left with. Uh, so there was some creativity in terms of trying to figure out a way to adequately fix it. You would think aesthetics would be a primary concern, and it was for patients. For me, it actually was not the primary concern. It was probably fourth or fifth. The concerns ahead of that were things like having a safe wound so the person didn't get you know, a terrible infection, hopefully making it so they could swallow, so that they could speak intelligibly. But nevertheless, it all, there was always some creativity involved in like trying to achieve those objectives with what you had at that moment. There was an element of artistry in it that appealed to me. The other thing I should say is that I didn't totally make a leap in that once I became an attending and I had a certain amount of disposable income, I did start collecting art. I spent a lot of hours in the hospital, like waiting around to start my surgery in the middle of the night. And so mm -hmm. uh, I would spend time like looking at what artworks were coming up to auction and what was um, available. And it was kind of a hobby, but it was, it was a little more than a hobby because it provided a, a degree of like, not to sound too dramatic about it, but a degree of spiritual sustenance 
Hmm. Because at a certain point, I felt like my job became so much involved with death that art kind of offset that feeling a little bit because art felt more like it was about life. Right. Um, so I had been collecting for some time. And then I got to the point, like most people who really get into collecting, you get to the point where like to keep collecting, you have to sell some things. So I did that and it was unexpectedly a little bit profitable and, and sort of fun. So I had set it up as kind of an online side business that I uh, had even started before I left medicine. Mm -hmm. So I, I had kind of a toll. I had told myself at that point that I would not open a gallery because galleries tend to be money sinkholes. Mm -hmm. and, Real estate. Uh, yeah, it's a difficult business model. But once I had made the switch within uh, six months, I had a gallery. So you opened a gallery in New York and you called it Burning in Water. Is that right? Yes. So tell me about that. How did that name come about and why did it change to today? It's called Malin Gallery. The original name was uh, something that I just found from a poem. I do like verse. Mm -hmm. And when I was first opening the gallery... I didn't really want to name it after myself. Most galleries are eponymous, but I was like kind of starting from nowhere. So I felt like my name didn't have a lot of currency and I might as well try to do something a little more interesting. So uh, my wife and a couple friends went with me one evening to um, like a Barnes and Noble that had a coffee shop where you could sit there and just like loiter for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So we just pulled books out of the poetry section and randomly read things and looked for terms of phrase that sounded interesting. So that's, uh, that's where it came from. It's actually a line from a Charles Bukowski poem. I didn't have a any special connection meaning. to Charles Bukowski, but I liked kind of a paradoxical nature of yes. it and kind of the conflicted conceptual basis, which is a, a topic that a lot of contemporary art revisits frequently so that was yes kind of just what we started with a true naming uh, exercise <laughs> yeah so that's what you started with and this is interesting because you you mentioned the paradoxical nature of burning in water and that's that's exactly what i thought of when i first found out the name and then you talk about the paradoxical nature of art being sort of the conflict for so many contemporary artists and I've seen some of the paintings in your gallery, so I can see that, uh, or I have seen that. But then you also talk about spiritual sustenance, which then carries you right through. So it makes me ask, why did you eventually change the name? What drove that? The ultimate name change was very, uh, for kind of crassly commercial reasons. Mm -hmm. As we got bigger... It was something that became more of a complication, and it particularly came up in art fairs because in an art fair setting, you often have like a few minutes to talk to people who come to see your presentation. And uh, particularly when we would do like European art fairs, people would want to talk to me about the name. So <laughs> I would spend the whole time explaining the name, and then they would move on, and we would never get to like actually discussing the art or what we had available. 
And uh, that was not my intention. The focus was supposed to be our artists and the artwork. And after we grew beyond a certain size, it just seemed to get more in the way. People would get confused. Was that the name of the gallery? Was that the name of the exhibition? Right. There were people who knew me and knew the gallery, but didn't put the two together, which was kind of um, frustrating. So we just kind of ultimately reverted back to the more conventional approach of using uh, my name for the gallery, which for commercial purposes has been helpful. It was a little less daring than where we started, but I guess that's how life goes. (laughs) Too much creativity, not necessarily good for a creative business or or the name of it. So Malin Gallery, tell me about the kind of art Malin Gallery represents, what kind of artists you have, you know, what we see today. And has it been that way right through or does it change? Well, uh, so we have a roster of artists who we represent exclusively. And that covers probably a half to two thirds of our programming. And those artists are, they're mostly kind of uh, mid-career to fairly established. So we have, we just added someone to the roster who is like 23, but I have three artists who are in their 80s. So um, we have kind of a span in that respect. And uh, we cover a variety of media, I guess if there's a commonality, I tend to want to show art that has some kind of topical relevance or sociopolitical relevance to what's happening in the world. And if there's a through line among our artists, it's sort of that. Over time, I've kind of backed off on stressing that too much because I don't want the identity of the gallery, I mean, it's kind of a fine line because every gallery has a little bit of an identity to their program, which becomes, mm-hmm. in a sense, your brand, to use a little bit of a dirty word as a gallery. <laughs> but I didn't want it to be so emphasized that it overshadowed the work or you know, imposed some sort of perceived restriction on what our artists did. So I've, I don't even really stress it overtly anymore but i would say that's the commonality right Um, and then we also mix it up with more historical shows that we'll do of like under-recognized artists usually artists who have passed who we feel like it's time for a kind of a reevaluation of so we mix that into the to the programming also and i feel like the two complement each other Absolutely. So when you are looking to add a new artist to your roster, are you specifically looking for somebody whose work fits that through line? Or is it not so structured? It's really not that structured. The through line, if anything, it comes from kind of my own interests, which I Mm -hmm. try not to you know, translate too directly into gallery policy. So I'm pretty open. I would say there's a fair amount of contemporary art that is, you know, a little, that trades heavily in irony and kind of verges on the flippant sometimes. And that's not really what we focus on. So there's kind of a natural 
gravitation to a certain type of artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend less time than than you might think, like going out and looking for artists. At this point, people tend to come to us or we also get referrals a lot from artists who are already on the program and are, are happy and will bring in other artists who they respect and feel like would fit well with the program. Mm-hmm. So it's been, I know there are other galleries that are always kind of on the hunt for new artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, it, it's just sort of grown organically to some extent. So, What takes the most time and the most amount of effort for you as the gallery owner? Well, you're always sort of working in multiple time frames because we'll have an exhibition at present, which you're trying to promote, and you're obviously trying to sell the work. But then you also have long-term planning about the next exhibitions in the gallery. And then Mm -hmm. out for a year, at least, you're planning art fairs that you might attend. So there's this real kind of strange multi-dimensional element to the time quality, which is like you're focused on several different periods of time at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it challenging. I can tell you, I don't know if this is the thing I spend the most time on, but the thing I like the least is we spent a lot of time trying to get paid um, <laughs> more time than you might think. So that uh, the most time, but it's painful enough that it feels disproportionate. I think I did explain to you, Barry, the premise of this show, which is to do this interview, which is nonfiction and then throw it out to a writer, a fiction writer, who would be, you know, who would pick up something from the interview and create a fictional piece out of it. So just wanted to end by asking you, if you were to give that writer a writing prompt based upon what we've been talking about, what would it be? Well, it seems like the topic is pretty timely, given that in the U.S. we're going through this, what, great resignation phenomenon where people at a mass scale seem to be reevaluating their jobs and what they want to do and how they want to do them Mm -hmm. and making appropriate changes. So, you know, that's something that a lot of people are facing, depending on how invested you are in the career that you've had to date. It does involve a certain amount of existential fear Mm. to just make that jump. I know you and I both went to one of our important college reunions uh, recently, and I won't say what year it was, uh, (laughs) but I was surprised during the course, it was like a weekend thing, at how many people came up to me and would like corner me and say like, I heard you left Madison. And obviously they had gone into Madison Mm. and they'd be like, how did you do it? How did you accomplish it? Okay. Uh, and I really didn't have much of an answer for them. I just sort of did it. It's like a lot of things in life, you just, there are times when you just make a leap. Yeah. But I think from a dramatic standpoint, that's the most compelling part is like what drives you to want to just roll the dice in that respect with, you know, a large part of your life and see what happens. There's part of that that, at least for me, was kind of liberating and a little bit thrilling. But there's also a fair amount of terror involved. So 
Well, terrifying or not, I think that following your passion has never been more timely, as you say. And in some ways, I think right down the ages. Barry, thank you. Where can we find out more about Mail-In Gallery? You can just go to our website. It's mailingallery.com. All right. Mailingallery.com. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today on the True Fiction Project. I cannot wait to hear the piece of fiction that comes out of this. That's Barry Malin. He is the owner of Mailing Gallery in New York and Aspen, which you can find at mailingallery.com. And I am Renita Hora, your host for The True Fiction Project. And now to the premise of The True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. First stop. This story was written by Jared K. Chapman from just outside of Los Angeles. His debut novel, To Have or Have Not, won a reader's and is a fresh take on dystopia. The air reeked of cleanliness. An industrial stench of sterility left by heavy-duty sanitation products. Everything shined bright white and glistened chrome with blinding fury. So, I lowered my sunglasses from their perch upon my forehead to shield myself from the pain. My footfalls echoed down the long, empty corridor, snapping back at me every time my sandals slapped the floor. Closed doors lining either side counted down the numbers like a NASA shuttle launch. T-310, 39, 38. At the end of the hallway, the enormous window welcomed me with a view of the city and rows upon rows of palm trees. Three seven, three six, three five. If not for the cars moving here and there and wind blowing through the leaves, I might have mistaken it for a painting. Three four, three three, three two. Even though I made this same trek more than a dozen times over the past two months, I still lingered for a moment to make sure. 3-1. The last door on the right. Taking a deep breath, I gripped the handle. As I cracked the door open, I blew out three slow puffs and peeked inside, hoping he wasn't getting a sponge bath or anything like that. Early on, I interrupted one, and we'd both be better off if it never happened again. With the coast clear, I shoved the brown bag I carried in my left hand through the opening. Hey, Papa, I come bearing gifts. I always came bearing gifts. The same thing every time. House roast coffee, black, with monster-sized crueler a la Aloha Joe. The guttural moan of his hello gave away his agony. I hadn't seen him like this since they first brought him in. Pneumonia, by itself? That wouldn't be a big deal. But the cancer in his lungs started to metastasize in between his chemo cycle. Do you want your coffee and donut? I asked, setting the bag on his bed table. He made a weak nod and raised his eyes to meet mine. Their stilly blue with a cloudy layer reminded me of a perfect sky. How you feeling today, Papa? Not good, buddy. It hurts to breathe. 
I can't stay awake. Well, maybe the coffee will help with that. Maybe. He gave me as wry a smile as he could muster and reached out his trembling hand. I grasped it with both of mine, trying to warm his loose flesh as it slipped from the bone. He leaned forward and placed the other cold hand on top of mine. Surprisingly, he had absorbed little to no warmth from the cradled cup. We sat in silence for a minute or so, staring into each other's eyes. These were the moments I enjoyed the most. A sense of connectedness. A relationship I had never achieved with anyone else. I don't want you to die. I blurted with tears welling in my eyes. The words vomited out of me like an erupting emotional volcano. I had no control over them any longer. Embarrassed, I pulled away, saying, I'm sorry, but my grandfather clung to my hands and stared into my eyes. I don't fear death, he uttered with shallow breaths between each word. I only wish I lived more when I could. What does that mean, Papa? To visit the pyramids and sphinx in Egypt. For the first time in months, a slew of words escaped his lips uninterrupted by short breaths. He spoke with eyes full of wonder and a voice full of excitement about archaeological and architectural marvels, adventures in the wild, and one-of-a-kind experiences of which I only dreamed. After I left his room, I repeated his words over and over, replaying the entire visit in my mind. When I reached my car, I pulled out my phone before getting in. I opened the voice recorder and dictated everything I recalled from my grandfather's bucket list. Sahara, Serengeti, Mount Fuji, Kathmandu, Angkor Wat, Stonehenge. All day long, I added the voice memo whenever a place or experience popped into my head. Taj Mahal, Petra, Kirkwall. Goblaki Tepe, the Amazon. Right before I fell asleep, a memory of his voice whispered to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. My phone rang, interrupting my sleep. I tried to hit snooze, but the ring wasn't my alarm. No, that ringtone belonged to my mother. Hey, what's up? Papa. Her agitated voice indicated she didn't have good news. But in my half-sleep state, I couldn't process most of her jumbled words. The only phrase that struck home was, He's in a better place. Uncontrollable rage ripped through me. I chucked my phone at the wall and screamed, thrashing against the mattress. Someone banged on the wall, so I buried my head into my pillow and cried until I fell asleep. Around 10 a.m., the hotel phone rang. I didn't answer, but the red light for messages blinked. For a moment, I thought I slept through my phone's alarm until I discovered the debris scattered across the floor. Initial frustration morphed into frantic desperation when I realized what I had done. I ransacked the room, searching for a pen and paper, and I scribbled down every location I remembered. After that, I folded the paper with the pen into my pocket, picked up the remnants of my phone, and took them to a repair shop in hopes of recovering my voice memos. 
This might take weeks, the tech cautioned, struggling to offer a positive expectation. But if there's something left, we'll let you know. By the time Papa's funeral came around, they still hadn't called, so I checked my new phone one last time before the service, turned it off, and shoved it in my pocket. My parents, aunts, uncles, and cousins sat with me in the special room for immediate family. Behind the protection of the veil, I peered over my fellow bereaved sitting in the pews. Among the many faces, four unfamiliar ones stood out. A white-haired man in a powder blue suit with a bright paisley tie, a bald man in military regalia sitting in a wheelchair, a pink-haired woman in a black frock with many strands of pearls, a silver-haired lady in a Hawaiian muumuu. Did they all know my grandfather? Of course, they did. They were at his funeral, after all. I wondered if they knew any of the missing items from his bucket list. So I was determined to seek each of them out at the reception and interrogate them. Hello, I said to the muumuu lady as she bit into an hors d'oeuvre. How did you know my grandfather? She coughed on her bite, swallowed, and giggled. Forward and to the point, just like him. Thank you. I beamed with pride at the comparison. What can I do for you? My grandfather told me about all these places he wanted to go. I made a list but lost it. I'm hoping you can help me find what I'm missing. He wanted to travel more? I thought his adventuring days were over years ago. What do you mean? Hold on, let me call over the other members of the council, she said, holding up a finger while searching the crowd. The what? Marty, come here, she hollered, waving to the soldier in the wheelchair. She spotted the pink-haired woman talking to the man in the powder blue suit a few feet away. Bonnie, Ted, join us. This is Jeffrey's grandson. Jeffrey? I never heard anyone call my grandfather Jeffrey before. There might be a lot you don't know about your grandfather, Marty said, willing up to them. He kept a lot of secrets. We all met during the Vietnam War, the Moomoo lady began. Your grandfather, grandmother, and us. Of course, they weren't married then. That's right. Bonnie said with a giggle. Jeffrey was moon-eyed over Nailani over here. A story for another time, interrupted Nailani. He wants to know about the Council of Adventurers and Globetrotters. Not our beatnik days, Marty coughed. All except for him, interjected Ted. Marty joined us after returning from the war. Purple Heart, your grandfather and I grew up together. Childhood chums. We started the idea for the council back as kids after learning about the Dalai Lama in Tibet. Imagine someone about your age being the spiritual leader of their people. That's what it was like for us. And what China did to him, driving him out of his home in Lhasa? Their dream to journey across the Himalayas, Ted sings song with flamboyant gesticulations, is what started our council and lives as adventuring world travelers. That first trip into Beijing, seeing the Forbidden City and Temple of Heaven, 
Don't forget the Great Wall, added Bonnie. You and Jeffrey had to carry Marty up. How could I forget? Then we took the train from Beijing to Lhasa. Right again. And we traveled down the Friendship Highway to Kathmandu, continued Ted. From there, we went up to Nagarkot to glimpse Mount Everest. Your grandfather and I went back and hiked to the base camp some years later with a Sherpa named Appa. The council regaled me with story after story of adventures around the globe, describing how happy my grandfather had been in those days. Every place they mentioned, I scrawled on the folded piece of paper titled Papa's Bucket List. But this wasn't a list of places he wanted to go. No, my grandfather had shared with me the times he truly lived. The council stayed with me until the reception ended and invited me to continue the stories over dinner. On the way to the restaurant, I remembered my phone in my pocket. After powering on, the voicemail icon lit up. You have two new messages. You have a message received today at 11.40 a.m. The first one didn't matter anymore. The phone text couldn't recover anything. Surprise, surprise. The second message, however, did matter. It mattered a lot. My grandfather's lawyer notified me of a peculiar inheritance he left for me called the CAG Fund. CAG Fund? I repeated several times, trying to ascertain the meaning. As if struck by lightning, the words formed in my head and spilled from my lips. Council of Adventures and Globetrotters Fund. My grandfather gave me more than money. Before he died, he showed me how to live life to the fullest and provided the means to do so. I plucked out the folded paper and pointed to one of the locations. First stop. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.